Welcome to the Toughness Podcast. I'm your host, Paddy Steinfort, and if you're anything like me, you cannot wait to hear what's coming up on this show. It's the second of our series of Hot Topic special episodes where we take a deep dive into the main pillars of toughness. And today's theme is Bend, Don't Break, how some of our very special guests use what the experts would call cognitive flexibility. In other words, your ability to change and adapt just enough, but not too much, so that you thrive even when you're under fire. Toughness doesn't mean rigidity. A rigid tree splinters with the wind, you know, but all these kind of challenges that we're all going to face, is it going to break you? Or are you going to have that combination of flexibility and strength to sort of bend and come back? Exploration to the moon has a new face for the mission. Holly Riding has already broke barriers by becoming NASA's first female flight director, but now her hard work is leading her to a new opportunity that is out of this world. You can't stay for very long and do what we do if you're not willing to just keep working the problem, right? Even when you really have no idea where to start. Ignition sequence start. We choose to go to the moon. So why isn't that the beast so damn When you're really pressured, you know, way out on the edge of your physical ability, the only thing you have left, the only gear you can go into is a mental one. Now, when we talk of being under fire, a great place to start off is obviously the military. Soldiers, Navy SEAL, special ops, fighter pilots can plan their action as much as they want. But when it's go time, the enemy's going to have other ideas and they'll definitely have to deal with having to adapt their nice, neat plans once they come under fire. Our first guest on this topic, Coleman Ruiz, spent 13 years of his life in an elite group of the US Navy SEALs and worked in some tough and unpredictable environments like Afghanistan and Iraq. So he knows just how important it is to have mental agility in order to reframe your thoughts and perform. We'll also hear alongside him how CeCe Craft, who is the Philadelphia Phillies Director of Mental Performance, believes that adaptability is crucial not only for military forces, but also for every single performer out there on her fields and anywhere in the world from baseball to an office job. It's something I've come to learn over the time. However, Patty, I think we can, you know, jump the gap or explain it a little bit better. And I'll use like the obstacle course example, you know, in our training or any training. If, if you're lined up with, let's say you're in your basic training class and you're lined up with a hundred guys, you know, all separated by 90 seconds on the obstacle course. And so you're watching people go in front of you and everything is about how good your time is and are you doing a good job and whatever, right? And you're watching a guy in front of you and he's just ripping through the obstacle course. You're like, that dude's agility and power is incredible. And what we don't say though is his, you know, his, uh, his, we don't recognize later that this person's, his or her uh, physical agility, it, there's an equivalent game to be played in mental agility or not even game. There's an, there's an equivalent level of skills to be learned in mental agility because yeah. as we talk about a lot, cease with like, at least I do with athletes is my guess with use basketball analogy. My guess is if LeBron James or Steph Curry wins a championship and they sit down at the press conference and the press conference folks ask them, you know, what did your team do to win this championship in such tight circumstances or whatever? They, they don't typically say that my, um, we, we shot the basketball really straight. You know, they, they don't typically say a, a physical thing. And the, and, and, and the reason is, and just like a soldier won't tell you why their combat deployment was successful, was not because we shoot our weapons really straight. That's why it was successful. No, no. They're going to tell you something about 
the training, the perseverance, the adaptability, the, the, the agility of the team, which is an indicator of their, their, their mental capacity for work and, and that mental agility, Patty. And if someone had just told me, said mental agility back in the day, I wouldn't have listened to it in the same way. But my point is like telling the obstacle course story is we have, we have how much we respect physical agility, but we hesitate to, to respect mental agility in the same way or train for it in the same way. But we all know based on research and where we are in 2020, that when you're really pressured, you know, way out on the edge of your physical ability, the only thing you have left, the only gear you can go into is a mental one. And so if what I share with our teams all the time is if we're going to say that we're elite, then let's be elite in every category we need to be in to perform under pressure. Otherwise, don't say you're elite. Um, my go, my go. first boss working for the military um, named Mike Larrera, who's a retired lieutenant colonel, still is. Um, he would do a whiteboard exercise that I loved and he would throw up um, agility, flexibility, power, strength, endurance. And he would say, okay, physically, how do we define each of these? No issue. How do we train each of these? No issue. Mental, same five. How, oh, how do we define these? And people would work out how to define them. You know, what's mental flexibility? What's mental agility? Okay, people, people can start to work through these. How do we train them? You know, and you think, well, okay, do you want these skills? Yeah, absolutely, we want these skills. Like, we need to be mentally flexible. We need to be agile. Okay, but we're not training them. So why do we think we should have them? And I, I think that's one of those pieces that we miss on the mental side, right? Like, we know physical gifts, some of them are, are we're born with or genetic or God-given, and some of them we have to work really hard to acquire. But we know to sustain them at a high level, we have to put in work. But, like... I've joked with a lot of people that teach them the graduate programs for mental performance. Like none of us got issued fairy wands or, or fairy dust at the end of our graduate programs to do mental performance. Like I don't have anything that's going to give it to you off the bat. You're going to have to work at it. I think the challenge for our field sometimes is, Hey, how do we tangibly create the training for you to work on it um, and make this something you understand that you are building and that you understand you're going to have to work at to build. Great point. And I think, uh, so a little side note for you guys, something crashed about my sound system. I'm talking off mic now, but hopefully it still works. Um, agility, right? Um, in terms of what you just mentioned there, CC, like the ability to train some of these things, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of a given in terms of mental endurance, right? Let's just do something that's mentally taxing for a long time. Cool. But agility, mental agility, how have you found the best way, whether it's in pro sports or with tactical athletes, how do you go about improving someone's mental agility? I think context is, is incredibly relevant, right? Ken, Ken Revisa would have said context, context, context. He probably would have used it in a slightly different way. But, but I think that's important too. So um, one of the areas that you're going to work a lot with on, in the military on the mental side oftentimes is memory, which is not as necessarily essential in sport. Um, but that's a huge piece of cognitively what's oftentimes getting processed along with, um, the ability to exert adrenaline, uh, keep going, carry weight, yada, yada. 
Um, so how, but, but we know things like, for example, for working memory, that training out of context doesn't always transfer very well. So if you're going to be working with soldiers where facial recognition is important or remembering license plates or numbers or things like that, context matters. And so I think when you look at mental agility, one of the pieces that's really interesting on the mental side is you have to understand the context for that performer whether that's an athlete or a soldier, and then you're going to build within that context to help them um, create agility. So if their job is going to demand that they are switching focuses or that they're able to ignore a distraction and listen in on something else, build within those contexts. Um, and ideally, just like in sport, you know, I think mental performance, if you can do it on a baseball field uh, when it's applicable is oftentimes better for the athlete, better for you than being in a, office. I think that's true for soldiers too, right? The more you can get within their normal training domains, um, the better it is when you find yourself in a sterile office. Um, you're doing a lot of trying to replicate or a lot of trying to build a scene to create generalization from that training to wherever you want it to go. Now, of course, you don't have to go to war to find yourself in a life and death situation though. A very left field example, excuse the baseball pun, is Cirque du Soleil who have appeared in the news several times in the past as some of its performers faced some scary and in some cases, unfortunately, tragic situations. A lot of things can go wrong when you're 50 feet from the ground and have literally less than a second to react. And that's exactly where people like Veronique Richard step in. She's the mental performance consultant for Cirque for almost six years and works with people who put their life on the line on a daily basis just to entertain the crowd. And it's interesting to hear that her definition of toughness actually means basically being flexible. She's joined by Darren Holder, and even though Darren, or known as Stubby back in Australia, trains athletes that are in a safer position, international cricket and other sports, changing and adapting is still a key element to perform at their peak on those battlefields as well. Adaptability, those that really can adapt to any situation from their really short-term situation, something happened on stage. And like in circus, something that people might not know is that the music is live. So the musician, for instance, if one artist fall down, they need to make the track, the musical track again, because that means it will take time for the artist to stand up and then to, and sometimes the artist will decide to do the tricks again, because this is the big trick and they want to show the audience. So there's this huge adaptability going on. Like the, one of the thing I love the most when I go on show, it's to go on this, like um, the, how do we call them? The, um, musical director the one that is really in charge it's not the name they give them but it will come back to me and you go in their boots like in their little spot wherever they are it's different on each show and then you see how like they call everything they call everything for the musician and everything is live and they have to adapt if someone if the musician is not fully attentive he will miss the call and if he missed the call then the music is totally uh, mixed up and then the artist will notice it. I've seen the last show I no the show before I don't remember the um, uh, band lead this is what I was searching for. So the band lead make a, made a mistake on the previous show and just like the amount like the whole pause in between the, the two shows she was just reviewing like what did I do wrong? Why didn't I see that? And then she was going through in her head. And there's a really uh, nice team spirit in circus. 
So the, the artists that were on stage when she made that mistake, they came to her and they like they just worked together into adapting to the next show. So there's beautiful thing happening, but definitely adaptability is one. Um, Stubby, your, uh, your work with the coaches is a little less about developing their toughness, but in line with, well, sorry, what would traditionally be referred to as toughness, but particularly in line with the first point Vero just made around toughness actually being in part flexibility and adaptability your your ability to to change based on the conditions and whatever's in front of you how, how much does adaptability come into being a good coach or particularly da- taking someone like you just mentioned uh justin langer the head coach of australia and being able to take them from a player who played and was successful and they're now a coach and they're probably coaching the way that they were coached they're leading the way they saw leaders lead and so that's what they think is right how much of your work is helping to expand their mind and, and make them flexible in different coaching and leadership approaches? Yeah, that's a great question. I really like the analogy that Vero used around what I would consider the, the conductor, you know, that you're trying to provide them with this opportunity to lead and all the pe- members of the band, whichever their role be in a cricket team or a football team, they know those with some real clarity and be able to perform them. Um, so I think when you threw around the toughness piece, I was thinking about their ability to just be the calm and consider and be consistent with their response as opposed to being reactive. So I think responding to the stimulus as opposed to reacting is a really key factor. So there's flexibility, but it's a flexibility in that they've taken in all those stimulus and tried to kind of level out um, the emotions that probably the performers are experiencing a bit more that Vera referred to. So the coach is a bit of a thermostat, you know, try and keep things level, but they also need to be authentic. So that's that's the one thing that young coaches really struggle with, Patty, is um, being someone that they were in a previous part of their life, maybe as a player, or trying to be that coach that they had. You know, so whether it be in a football code, whether it be cricket or any other domain, I think we have a range of coaches through our sporting careers, but then we need to still be you. And so finding themselves is part of the role that I play for them. And I've seen some tremendous growth in coaches where they've really invested in that part to try and get to know themselves. And then they find that that really opens the door to them being able to connect more strongly with the people around them. And then guess what? It takes care of itself from there. You know, the X's and O's start to fall into place and and the strategies and the missions or the performances uh, take care of themselves. You're listening to Toughness, a podcast where some of the world's best performers from different fields share their personal stories about pressure, stress, and success. This series of interviews is a product of the Human Performance Think Tank, with thanks to the U.S. Army and Booz Allen Hamilton. Coming up later in the show. This idea of being able to zoom back, separate myself from the problem, take a really big picture look at this thing, don't get emotional about it. That is like the skill I think that everybody should adopt. Very cool to hear there how Cirque du Soleil is really the perfect example of it's not going to be enough just to be the best at what you do and rehearse and practice every day. Shit is still going to happen. And if you're mentally tough, you have to improvise and learn how to roll with it. Quite a metaphor for life, right? This is also the case for a lot of Olympic athletes. Imagine spending four years of your life preparing and planning for something that's only going to last just over 20 seconds. Well, That was all the time that was required for Veronica Campbell-Brown to win the gold medal at Beijing's 2008 Olympics. It's mind-blowing to think that these elite performers spend all this time preparing, planning, and training for a quick sprint, and yet, during their journey to the podium, 
they'll have to change and adapt to different things that are going to happen in the moment. Not only in the moment, but also along the pathway. You can have injuries, may struggle to qualify, your opponents could get better than you. Personal problems can come up, but still, you have to deliver when it's go time. Veronica is joined by her personal coach, Eric Karem, who worked directly with her for 14 years and played a huge role in the development of her mental flexibility. Well, as a young girl, I dreamt of becoming an individual Olympic gold medalist. And so my first taste at the Olympic was as a high schooler. I was 18 years old. And my Olympic dream came true in 2004, and that was my senior year in college. But I wouldn't say that my first Olympic gold medal was the highlight of my career. I think it was in 2008 when I defended my title and become the second woman in history to win Olympic back-to-back 200 meters. And actually, I didn't even know that leading up to, because I don't really keep up with stats and stuff like that. I was focused on what I wanted to get done. But that race was the highlight for many reasons. In 2008, I did not make the 100-meter team in Jamaica. So I was defeated in the 100-meter at the trials. I expected to make the team. I didn't. And so the next day, I had to come back for the 200 meters. And the, the girls that beat me in the 100 meters were my competitors in the 200. And so I had to lay it out all on the line. I had no choice because now I was the defending champion and I, was, I had to get a spot. I won the trials and I went on to Beijing and I won the 200 meter. So that was my protest moment because I asked for one individual Olympic gold medal and I got two in 2008. I failed in the 100 meter and I was the first time in my career I was sitting and watching the 100 meter and was not running it at any championship. From, a, from junior days, I was always running the 100 meter and 200 meter. So this was the first time I felt like I was somewhat rested going into the 200 meter. Uh, nice. Yeah. And the time I ran in the 200 meters is still my PR, 21.74. And at the end of that race, I, I, Eric mentioned, or maybe it was you mentioned someone who said they feel like they were dying. I actually felt like I was dying at the end of that 200 meter. I could not breathe. It seems like I ran that race so hard. It was unbelievable. I was overwhelmed with joy to defend my title, but I was like, stress was like, I was leaning down. I could not breathe. Alice was coming to congratulate me and I could hardly stand up to greet her or to just touch her like this. I was like my, feel like I was dying. So that was the highlight. So that's why I said that there's always, I always find good in, in, in things that is not so bad because I was disappointed with 100 meters, but I ended up was more energetic for the 200 meter having only one event and were able to defend my title and that I ran cemented me in history. So my 2008 Olympic victory, I would say, was a, is the highlight of my career. Very cool. I didn't, I didn't tell you too, the, this little asterisk on the 4Hs game is that anyone in the audience can ask you a question after you've told the story, and I have a question about that. <laughs> you talked about losing the 100 and then having to back up to, the, to, to qualify the 200 the next day. There are benefits down the track for you. You're more rested when it comes to the Olympic stage, but... That must have felt some way, right? You lose that 100. You, you said you were fully expecting to make the team in the 100. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you transfer that energy, that feeling of, that's not a good feeling probably, to, okay, I have to race in less than 24. How do you transform that? How do you channel it? What did you do to move that emotion to a place where you then went and dominated that 200? Right. So 
I had my quick moment. So I cried for a little bit. I complained to my coach and my agent a little bit. And then I quickly had to just shake it off and just refocus. I knew that my training were good. I knew that I was the best curve runner in the field. And I knew that all I had to do was to focus on me and my execution. And then that would be good enough for me to win because I prepared well for the 100 meter I just missed the mark. I think I missed the mark in my starts and the other girls, they came well prepared and they just had a perfect race and mine wasn't in the 100 meter, but I knew that that was just the 100 meter, not because the 100 meter wasn't the way I wanted it. That doesn't mean that I, I'm not ready. I'm not prepared to run a good 200 meters. And so I quickly put the 100 meters behind me and embraced the fact that I did not make the team in the individual 100 meters. And I was just going to the Olympics to run the four by one at that point. And I really wanted an individual event and I had no choice. The 200 meter was the only thing that I had left and I had to go there and just go for it. Yeah, really cool. A good example, again, of that quick acceptance of, all right, I've got to take this. I've got to flush it. I've got to move on and get ready for the next one. We'll, we'll finish with this final question, which is, as I've mentioned throughout the show, there's many people listening who are not Olympic gold medalists, track beasts. There are many people listening who are not coaches to Olympic gold medalists. They are regular folk who may be trying to pursue a college degree, maybe trying an audition, music, entertainment, could be trying to build a business, could be trying to make rank in the army, in the military, could be just trying to be a good parent or a partner. What have you learned in each of your journeys that you think is actually, you say that skill or that knowledge is transferable to not what I do? Like I can take that home with me. I can take that into a boardroom. Like what is the skill that you've learned throughout your specialist training to becoming one of the best in the world that you say, you know what, I actually can apply that elsewhere outside of that arena? Go for it, B. <laughs> I think for me, it is just mental toughness and being determined because as an athlete, by having an organized way of doing things, I know that I have to get up every day and I have to train and I have to do certain things a certain way. It has taught me to be consistent and to be determined and just to stay focused and believe in myself and just, I guess, mental resilience is the word I'm looking for. Track and field, my career has taught me to be mentally resilient. Just keep pushing through regardless of what I'm facing in life. Cool. Good example. Eric, you got one? Yeah, I would say seeing a problem for what it is. That hmm. is kind of what my career has been built on is problem solving. And, you know, there's, there's something in, in the world that I've worked in called, you know, you can look at things as a reductionist or a complex system, meaning like this is this, and this is this, and this is this, but everything is interrelated. Like, even if you're trying to get that job in the boardroom, there's so many factors at play that you may not even know about. Maybe there's somebody behind the scenes that's greasing the wheel and you go in so prepared and you felt like you knocked it out of the park and it just didn't work out. There are things, there's all sorts of complex interacting systems and, and getting somebody like a Veronica or somebody else to perform at their best is very complex because it's not just physical, there's mental, there, I mean, there's physical, there's mental, there's the diet, there's the sleep, there's, you know, we've had instances where things didn't work out well and it was because of something else. And so this idea of being able to zoom back and really just like separate myself from the problem and go, okay, take a really big picture look at this thing. Don't get emotional about it. 
that is like the skill I think that everybody should adopt because like right now I'm going from coach to entrepreneur and I have to like really zoom back and be like, I don't know the answer to this. I got to test it. I got to go find somebody that's got the answer. I got to go get them on my team, you know? And so I think that's a skill set that anybody can adopt. Now, if we take it out of the field of performance and switch to the pure psychology of it, when it comes to diving into the human mind, Stephen Hayes' name definitely stands out above the pack. Considered by many a hero for modern psychology, one of the biggest names in acceptance and commitment therapy, a practice that basically preaches mental flexibility, Hayes thinks that true toughness actually means being flexible enough to not break when the pressure is too high. His thoughts are reaffirmed by Ben Freakley, who's a former director of mental performance with the Toronto Blue Jays, and he talks about how they train and actively encourage the idea of being flexible in professional athletes and military operators. Toughness doesn't mean rigidity. You know, a rigid tree splinters with the wind, you know, but you want to have, you want to be able to have that strength to come back, but also the resilience to take those waves, to take those hits, to take the time where you're injured or you're, you're on the bench or you're in a, you know, you've had a losing streak or you got in a batting slump or something, or, you know, your girlfriend just dumped you or, you, you know, you, you, you had a, uh, a scary uh, diagnosis. Maybe there's something going on physically. All these kind of challenges that we're all going to face, is it going to break you? Or are you going to have that combination of flexibility and strength to sort of bend and come back, be focused and move? And it turns out uh, that's true whether you're dealing with anxiety, depression, substance use, or the challenge of physical disease, or running a company or succeeding in high level sports performance or being in the special ops. You know, they're pretty good evidence that uh, some of these same pro processes predict how people get through a military training and click off their performance goals and move up through the hierarchy in a way that keeps them in balance and prepared to the next thing. And so it's finding its way into all these high performance areas. And I think that's a good thing for people. You better be enough open up to what your body's doing, motion's doing, history's doing, so you, you have the access to your thoughts, feelings, memories, bodily sensations in a way that's open and not running away from your own history. You'd be able to bring your attention fully to the present moment inside and out. That's usually what people are talking about, especially with mindfulness training and contemplative practice does that. But to do that from this point of consciousness that connects you in consciousness to other people, there's a person behind those eyes, and then to be able to take that essential flexibility and focus on what's important by choice. What do you want to be about? What do you want to reveal? How do you want to be in the story that you're writing with your life's moments? And can you build habits around that? So those six, you can chunk them as being more open, aware, and actively engaged. But if you, and that's now we've got three, but if you want one, being more psychologically flexible. Right. That's a, and it's, it's a really, I really like using this, as a, a category of training as well, categories of training as well. And that flexibility word is an easy transition into working, particularly with athletes, uh, dancers, any other kinesthetic-based performers, because you can say, you know, does it help to be more flexible? Some of them might say it's not the first thing that I'll train, but yeah, it's good. It prevents injuries and also it may give me more power on my swing or more range on my move. And so it's a really tangible example of if you do this, here's a... a a way you can imagine that your mind will be able to work better. What we've done in, in our world, Steve, is, you know, we, instead of calling it psychological flexibility, we called it mental toughness. 
because that that's the, the term that's thrown out in sports so much, which is here's a guy about to be in pressure, in pressure, or now experiencing pressure because things didn't go well. And what set of mental qualities does he or she possess that it's going to allow them to have the fastest possible turnaround, whether they have to perform the next mission, the very next night after they've lost a comrade, or whether they have to go out and play the very next night after going 0 for 4, do they have the mental skills that allow their abilities, and I'm not going to say natural abilities because they work their ass off for these skills, do they have the mental skills that clear a pathway for those abilities to come out? You are listening to Toughness, and if you're this far into the episode, there's a good chance you like the show. You can add to the conversation with the whole review, rate, subscribe, and share thing. If this helps just one person who needs to hear what our guests share to get them through today, it'll all be worth it. Stay tuned for more coming up, including... You're not defeating those locks through force. In fact, that's why those the locks are designed that way. You're defeating those locks because you understand how to use the tool and apply physics. It's all about finesse. Speaking of heroes, there's definitely one group of people that comes to mind when we think about being under fire, and that's the FDNY, the Fire Department of New York City. We had the honor of having Jason Bresler on as a guest, who is a retired major in the United States Marine Corps and a lieutenant in the FDNY. And Jason talked about how crucial flexibility is to both a soldier and to a firefighter. When you jump into a burning building, there's a hundred different tragic outcomes that can happen. Things will rarely go as planned, and so you're constantly dealing with the unknown. Bresler is joined by Jonathan Fader, who's a psychologist that draws on his years of experience with pro sports teams in New York as well, namely the Mets in MLB and the Giants in NFL. In many instances, um, when I look back at my kind of suboptimal performance, it's because the, it's somewhat cliche, but because the, the, the pressure of the moment be almost instantaneously or spontaneously exceeded the, the privilege of the moment. And it went from like enjoyment mode, confident mode, like I got this to like, oh, oh shit, I don't have this. And in many instances left to my own devices, I responded both kind of mentally and, and physically with more, more aggression, right? In an instance where it was actually like, and now in retrospect, it would have been, it's better for me to kind of dial it back right like less less energy less you know scientific context like less less arousal mm-hmm. I mean, years ago i really embraced this notion of mental mental toughness you know i pride myself on being a combat marine and having fought in places like fallujah and southern afghanistan and you know, pride myself on being a new york city firefighter but as my understanding of the science um and human behavior has has evolved and as I've, I've, I've benefited greatly from expertise and insight from folks like Fader and, and so many other folks in, in sport and the military, um, it's rare that I even refer to it as toughness because I think really what it is, it's actually agility because what we're actually looking for in these moments is we're looking for finesse, right? So a guy forcing a door in New York City that's fortified and has several case-hardened locks and, um, you know, steel – to, you know, basically so that someone can't force that door at, at will. 
right? And, and commit th theft. Those are the same types of buildings now we, we find ourselves at fires at in, in, in urban environments. Like you're not defeating those locks through force. In fact, that's why those, the locks are designed that way, right? You're defeating those locks because you understand how to use the tool, right? And apply physics. It's all about finesse. It's, you know, and I could say the same in combat, like employing your weapon system on the surface, it looks like a tough act. It is you're arguably, uh, you know, potentially taking somebody's life, right. Or neutralizing an, an armed threat, right. To increase the likelihood that you, you win. And, um, but it's, it's on the surface, it looks like it's about toughness. It's really about finesse, the ability to pull a trigger, right. The ability to innovate, um, a fallen comrade, right. The ability to apply a tourniquet to an injured civilian, like, all of these things that we do at flyers and emergencies and large, the ability to fly a helicopter, right? I mean, there are times where the toughness kicks in, right? You're several hours into this patrol. You're several hours into this, this demanding tour at the firehouse. You're several hours into your demanding patrol on law enforcement. But for the most part, what we're actually, these high pressure situations, high stakes, what we actually need is actually um, less brute, yeah. right? Less force, and more precision or more agility or more, or more finesse. And it really was like through my relationship, particularly with Fader and seeing his work, work with athletes that kind of helps really solidify that for, for me. Yeah. And that, and that's a fascinating, like I've probably discovered that myself playing professional sport as a young man and then being just a, a normal coach before I became a mental coach or a performance coach that, that I always thought it was like be tougher, be stronger, hang in there longer. Like it was much more about force and endurance. But the more I've learned, and particularly with high-level performers, it's, it, it does become a lot more about definitely agility. Like there's not always one way to solve a problem. And also flexibility, that at times I will actually let go. And that's what needs to happen here for us to work this out. Fader, what's been your biggest aha in that area you know one of the things that we talk a lot about in mental conditioning is this idea as jason's talking about about finding a place of calm in the middle of uh, of chaos and what are the techniques that you use or the way of being to find that calm in the middle of chaos um and how can you be your best self in those situations in other words one one idea i have about what we would call mental toughness but i think about agility is being able to perform the same way that you perform without a stress when the stress is there, right? Um, and so basically, you know, what happens is I actually fail at my own game in that moment. I, I, I get so freaking, you know, hyper aroused. I'm so, my, my, my arousal is ticked up. I'm so activated that when the guy, I'm Michael Strahan's interviewing me, I start getting amped and I'm like, you know what? It's just, it's just incredible, incredible mental toughness. <laughs> and my phone literally lights up after I walk off this, you know, interview. And all these FDNY guys are just like razzing me about, oh, really? Mental toughness now, Fader. Like, you, you didn't like that term. And now, so, I mean, I think, I think basically, you know, when I think about this, um, you know, one NFL running back once said to me, I do this exercise with teams where I'll say, okay, as you, you know, as you're talking about, what is mental toughness? And I'll have everybody fill out a little note card. Uh, you do get back some kind of very hilarious responses to that. I remember, you know, like... <laughs> Someone said once, you know, mental toughness is not punching someone in the face when they irritate you. Um, and they're not, they're not entirely wrong. But really, one of the best uh, definitions that I got about mental toughness um, is that it's having an excellent filter. Um, and I think when you think about what that means, it's saying like, okay, 
when stress comes, I know ahead of time what my filter is going to be to be able to diminish the effect of that stress on my performance. And so I think what most people do is they don't develop that filter. They don't know. They don't know how they're going to react. They're just kind of freewheeling it. And it's, it's kind of, to me, to, to your point before, it's pretty crazy that that's the case, especially when you think about what kind of games are on the line or in an operator space, what's on the line, right? We're kind of freewheeling a lot of the time. We're saying, well, if I get, if it gets hairy or sideways, as they say, uh, sometimes in the fire department, I, I don't know how I'm going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to, you know, I, when I ask major league baseball players that um, I, it really, it shows me who they are because if I ask someone, a player like, Hey, you know, what do you do if you give up a home run? And they'll say, well, you know, um, I just kind of shake it off. But then I say, okay, how do you do that? And if they can't tell me in very specific terms, I know that they're actually vulnerable out there. Mm -hmm, they mm -hmm. can't say, well, what I do is I take a deep breath or what I do, or even to me, like, I'm not sure what I do, but I have this kind of little place I go in my yeah. mind. That's fine. Right. It doesn't have to be like, oh, I use self-talk, like whatever, you know, but not having a way, yeah. a green way that I, this is the way that my mind goes to help me through it. And I know what that place is and I know how to navigate there. If you don't have that, you're, you're really in jeopardy. Now, flexibility is obviously a crucial skill for those who are putting their life on the line, like the fire department of New York City. But it also comes in handy for those who are operating behind the scenes, supporting those people. That's the case for Holly Ridings, who is the first woman to be named chief flight director at NASA. And when she's directing a mission at the International Space Station, basically her day-to-day -day job, Ridings is responsible for the life of every single astronaut on her team not to mention the billions of dollars of equipment that's up there. Can you imagine the amount of pressure that comes with that role? It is crazy. You're dealing with human beings and a lot of complex systems that can fail and do. So it's crucial for Holly to be flexible and pay attention to the right things in order to make sure everyone's safe and the mission is completed. We have a, a what we call foundations of flight operations. So at the Johnson Space Center, right, the flight directors where our organization is is uh, FOD, the flight operations director, right? And so we have a, you know, like a creed and it's, you know, discipline, competence, teamwork, you know, the things Preston was mentioning, but one of them is toughness. And it says you take a stand when you must to try again, even if it means following a more difficult path. And so when you're in the control center, toughness is a lot about, it's a, it's a little bit of a dichotomy, right? I absolutely know we have to do this right this second, you know, to keep the spacecraft safe, to keep the crew safe. And then on the other hand, it's just extreme humility. There's something going on and I don't understand it. And it's actually really difficult to find that form of toughness in, in a single person. People really like to be right. Engineers, you know, maybe everyone, but they really, really don't like to be wrong. And so to find that form of toughness, right? I'm absolutely certain, and the next minute, I don't know. Um, and so that's kind of what's in our creed. You know, when I read it, though, what popped in my head was maybe a little more what you would describe as resilience, because the other component is like, whatever it takes. We see problems all of the time that we don't know how to solve, and you just chip away and chip away and chip away and kind of never give up. And so that's a, that's a different form of, of toughness but you can't, you can't stay for very long and do what we do if, if you're not willing to just keep working the problem, right? Even when you really have no idea where to start. 
Yeah, I, I, that's awesome that it's in your creed. That, I didn't expect that. That's a very, uh, very cool revelation. But particularly that line of whatever it takes, which is a cliche in most instances because, uh, A, it may not get followed to the letter of the law, but also it's probably not essential. But particularly, obviously, at NASA, but Preston, with all of the people you work with, it is kind of necessary. Like, whatever it takes, otherwise someone's going to die. It, is, is that part of how you would define it? Preston? Yeah. And, and I, Patty, I want to answer that question. And I will answer that question. But before first, I want to go back to what Holly just said and paint a little bit of a picture and get Holly to sort of comment on my observations while sitting in mission control. So I've, I've had the opportunity to sit with Holly in mission control. Right. And what's interesting is sort of, I want to paint you this picture. Right. So you've got, I think, 21 or 22 consoles um, in, in the room somewhere around that. Um, at each of those consoles sits an individual who is in charge of a system, right? So electric, I'm, uh, I'm not, these are not technical terms I'm about to say, computers, like oxygen, like electricity, the batteries, like whatever it takes, right? They're all broken into components, right? This is so fun. Yeah. So, but, and each one of them, by the way, sitting, looking at their system is on a headset, talking to everyone who ever made any part, right? We're all standing in their little rooms all over the globe right on standby to support if some little weird bolt falls out of action or cracks what happens though and this is what i'm getting at is that let's say that a system like air circulation starts to have a problem well that's not one thing that's multiple things right that's electricity that's power that's that's a whole bunch of things so holly as the chief flight director will have multiple people standing up and going, I have a problem. And part of what she has to do is pick which one of them she has to start with, which means saying to some other people, I'll be with you in a second. Now, keep in mind, that individual who's been given the hand, like, I need a minute, is literally telling you, my system is telling me we've got a real problem and this is all I think about and do. And I'm telling you, I'm the most important thing here every single person would be because they're passionate. And toughness is about both Holly's ability to be like, I get it, give me a minute. And their ability to go, Roger that, I get it. I get the bigger picture. So I would just, and, and Holly, I, I want you to jump in because I probably mangled a bunch of that. But I do, uh, that's one of the things that I've, I've always admired about the folks that work in that room because if I was sitting at this table, I would be standing on the table freaking out, right? Like, no, 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 all of my lights have gone red, like all of them. <laughs> so I need you to pay attention to me now. But the reason they're going red is because two other systems, which are actually prime, are the problems. So Holly has to go to those, not to me. She solves those, my problems go away. But that's not my focus, if that makes sense. Holly, is that fair, that description? Yeah, that, that's the most fun I've had all week, Preston. <laughs> Listening to you describe mission control. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're training new flight directors. Actually, right now, they just started their simulations that I was telling Patty about. And, you know, they start out that way a little bit. Like, there's 900 red lights. What do I do, right? And, and so part of the transition from what we call a subject matter expert, you know, the person who just does the air to a flight director is that ability to prioritize, right? And, and stay calm while you're doing it and just see the critical path and pick out the most important thing, right? What is, what is the most important thing 
And what is the next thing? Sometimes those are the same thing. And sometimes they're a little bit different because you got to take a couple steps to get to the most important thing, right? And you just calmly run that algorithm over and over and over, right? I, I you know, I guess after many years of doing it, it, it sounds maybe simple, but but it is really challenging to train your brain. Again, lots of lots of uh, analogies, I think, to to team sports, right? You know, when you yeah. are, you know, the the major league baseball manager, what's the next most important thing you need to do? You know, or or I've talked to Formula One guys, you know, who who manage the race cars. You know, they're kind of the equivalent of a flight director. What's the next most important thing you need to do? Right. It's fair to say that after listening to all of the guests in this special compilation today, you can see the huge role that flexibility plays in building and maintaining toughness under fire. We went from the circus to space and every battle scenario in between, some of them life-threatening, some of them just on the sports field. But one thing we can say for sure is that unpredictable things are going to happen. And those who thrive under those conditions are the ones who can take a moment, analyze the problem and adapt and use that to go even further. So the next time your plan goes to shit, Keep in mind that even elite performers have to improvise and adapt, and you have the capacity to as well. See you next week to analyze another pillar of toughness, and until then, stay tough. Excellent, with the best of them. Simply impressive, no worrying.